This episode is brought to you by Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, where the Andrews family brings the great ideas of Western literature to bear on the life, art, and culture of our modern world. Look for Bibliophiles, that's Bibliophiles with an F, wherever you get your podcasts, or find curriculum materials, online classes, and book clubs at centerforlit.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, which is a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be answering your questions about William Faulkner's As They Lay Dying. This is one of those novels that leads to a long and winding thread of questions on the Facebook group. Lots of great questions came in there and via email. So we got to just dig right in, guys. I mean, I, I want to know how you are. I want to know what's going on with your life. I want to know all about the weather, where you live. But I think we just need to get into these questions because there's so many good ones. So I, I love you. I want to know how you're doing, but we don't have time. We don't have time to know how you're doing. So David, do we want to talk about the um, Substack news? Yeah, we probably should. That, I mean, you did just ask a question. So I guess that fits into the right it's part the, of the category. So those of you who have been listening for a while know that we have... We have a Patreon page that we've been using for the last couple of years where people can uh, support the show financially and in return get some swag and and, um, access to great content, such as bonus episodes. Right now we're doing Anna Karenina. We did Lord of the Rings. Before that, we did Crumb and Punishment. Up next, we will be doing... Well, that's an announcement for a future day. But we have decided to shift from the the Patreon platform over to the Substack platform. And Substack is where we currently host our newsletter. We're doing this because Patreon is a pain in the butt, partly. Um, it's just very difficult to keep track of who signed up and on what tier and all that kind of stuff. So we're trying to simplify things by using Substack. Um, and for $8 a month, or if you want to sign up for the whole year, $80 for the year, you can get access to a whole bunch of great content, bonus podcasts, written stuff. Heidi's going to write something on duty and desire each month. We're going to have close rants we promised just even some discussions on new books you know lots of great stuff so you can go to closereads.substack.com and you can figure out how to sign up for that you can get access to that we sent out a letter um, on facebook and also to the people who are already signed up for patreon if you're a patreon supporter currently you've already been moved over you'll be given a free month if you're a monthly donor over there and then at the end of that you can decide whether you want to continue or if you're an annual donor over on patreon you've been given a free year um, if your subscription was more than six months old, if it was less than six months old, you'll be given six months. It's confusing, I know, but you're being given the rest of your term, basically. <laughs> and then at the end of that, you can decide if you want to uh, to continue. But we're really excited to be able to put everything together. We're calling it Close Reads HQ. It's going to be written content. It's going to be conversations. It's going to be podcast. All the uh, old Patreon bonus episodes are going to be there. So when you sign up, not only do you get whatever's coming, but you're also getting like 70 hours of bonus episode podcasts that you can go back and listen to on old books, plus all the hours that are coming. So um, it, it's Close Reads HQ, closereads.substack.com. We're excited when you support the show, uh, you get that content, but you also uh, help us pay our editor and help us, you know, live. <laughs> so uh, thank you to everyone who's been supporting and hopefully we're going to be able to just keep, keep growing this thing. Um, and make everything in one place, the one-stop shop for close reads. So that's kind of the the summary, the elevator pitch. That's the answer to the question, Tim. Should we move on to the next question now? Yeah, we should move on to the next question. 
All right. But there are a lot of questions on the Facebook page. There are a lot. A yep. lot. So I want to start with this question here by Jennifer Watts-Degani, I think is how you say her name. And this is one that I meant to bring up, but it didn't, we didn't, didn't fit naturally into the last conversation. And she asks, why doesn't Faulkner give us a description of Addie's burial? I'll be honest, says Jennifer, after reading a book that was about the arduous journey of getting her body in the ground in the right county, I felt a little let down that the actual burial is not exactly discussed. There are a few fights that go down, but it feels like there is a gap. Is there supposed to be a gap because her internment has not brought peace? How do others feel about this? So there are a few responses there. But how do you, how do you read that? That the whole book is meant to lead up to this one moment, and then we don't get the catharsis of that moment. I think that's the whole point. I, I think that it's withheld from us so that we know that that was never going to be the point, particularly because of ants. And then the, on the plot level, like it wasn't his motivation really, you know, to get there to bury Addie. I think that if we had had a big burial scene and tears and prayers, it would have made the whole journey feel like it was worth it. And I think the whole point is that it was never going to be worth it. Hmm. So, Tim, what was the point then? (laughs) To see this family in turmoil, I think. I mean, I I agree. I think it would have been kind of a – it could have been interesting to see the burial. You know, what would have been said – it would not have resolved all of the unresolved problems and conflicts and kind of just the, the, I don't think it would have done much of anything except feel perhaps a little bit saccharine Mm. because it's just, there's just not a resolution in this book. But like there's a difference between offering a saccharine ending and offering catharsis. Like, like lots of books, provide catharsis for the drama yeah. of the story without it being overly sentimental. Is, do you guys feel, do you feel as to use Jennifer's phrase, let down by the lack of catharsis or do you feel like the catharsis comes elsewhere in the drama? Tim, how do you feel about that? I kind of feel like the catharsis is for me, the madness of Darl. It's kind of like, hmm. yeah, this is, this is kind of a natural response to the environment that he's in. And Hmm. he has been, in some ways, the narrator who's been kind of like the most, we've talked about, we talked about this last week, kind of the most collective in his maybe consciousness. He's aware of others. He's thinking of others, not just himself. Um, And to have Hmm. him just mentally rupture, that's the cathartic moment for me. It's not a, it's not a redemptive cathartic moment, but I think it's the proper catharsis for this book. Hmm. Like it's fitting for this. Yeah, it's fitting, yeah. Heidi, what were you going to say? I thought that, I don't know if I think this book has a catharsis, although I think Mm -hmm. it has, I I think I'm convinced by Tim, I'm convinced by your reasoning that that is a emotionally loaded experience for the reader um, that, that brings with it a sense of disintegration as well as integration. Like, I, I, it's hard to describe. Like, it's a very paradoxical moment to see him fall apart as a reader to experience that. But I think that I felt, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Other, I'm just going to say this. I felt like it was a great move on Faulkner's part. So 
to not show us the burial. And so in reading his, uh, in reading it in the book that there was no burial, I felt like, wow, what great writing. This feels like a catharsis in terms of the writing, but not within the story. Does that make sense? Because I, I know that is it's like, I know it within doesn't really the form? make sense. Yeah, well, it just felt like it's a great decision to me to give the whole book was supposed to be about burying her and then we didn't get nothing about the burial. Like to me, that just felt like the form that the the absence within the form, within the structuring of the novel was so satisfying to me because that sends a message mm. that's t- intrinsically tied to the meaning, which is the whole thing was meaningless. Mm. <laughs> So is the is it nihilistic then? Oh yes, of uh, yes, and I you will be hard pressed to convince me that folk that this novel is not nihilistic. But I also think it's great, and I loved it. And so when you say I'm it's not, not necess- it's not it. This isn't a Cormac McCarthy moment. That's like you know, this this is there. He's still longing for meaning. I just think Faulkner is like. Their life is terrible, period. So, Tim, is this a book that is nihilistic in the sense that nihilism happens, or, or so to speak, or that the worldview that undergirds the book itself is mm, yeah. the universe is nihilistic? Does that make sense? I, see, I don't know. This, yeah, to me, that's, that's, that's a great questions. way of framing the question. Because mm. um, I, I feel like those two things get conflated. Right. I don't think that Faulkner has a worldview that I would call nihilistic. That puts aside the question of whether or not this book is nihilistic. And my case that Faulkner is not nihilistic doesn't come from this book. It comes from his Nobel Prize speech, you know? I mean, like, there's a real sense of... um, I think that he wants to kind of recognize the travails of people like this family living in the South at this time. And he wants to highlight them, I think, as a kind of effort toward human brotherhood, you know, for, for like a kind of a recognition that like this really happens. This is not, literature is not just all heroes and kings and victories, Um, and it's also not, how do I say it? Like the failures of the human race are often like grimy and seemingly absurd. And I just, I just don't think that you would spend that much time on this family if you didn't have higher hopes for a family like this, you know, Mm. it doesn't have to be this way. So maybe the book is nihilistic. I don't think that the view of the author is. Okay. Well, I also think to add to that, that one thing that we've talked about a lot on the, on the podcast, and I think comes through to anybody who reads Faulkner is that he's playing with the form. And so he's some of his kind of the, the, um, unconventional storytelling choices, like not having a burial in a book about a burial is, uh, it, it is tied to meaning and it's also tied to the form when he's, he's asking us the question in some ways, challenging us with our expectations, not only of the meaning undergirding these people's lives, but of storytelling itself. If I'm writing a book about a burial, does it have to have a burial? How important is it to you? He's, he's, 
he's playing with the form and challenging us through the stream of consciousness and through the development of the plot on a formal level, as well as a meaning level. Mm. Man, we could keep going on this for so long, (laughs) but the nature of the Q and a, okay. This question is, this is a wonderful question. I mentioned this to you guys before we were started recording. It's from Rosemary Moeller and she emailed this to me. So this is, this is a great question for a podcast called Close to Reads, And it's a question that's like super of our alley, I think. She says this, quote question about all the similes involving eyes. I kept noticing them when I lay dying, but I haven't made any connection. This fine Bordeaux of a book was a bit much for me. So I'm asking you guys in case there is a major point that would put it all together. Nice metaphor there in this question about similes. She says, maybe Faulkner just likes similes though. And so here are a few examples. Her eyes are like two candles when you watch them gutter down into the sockets of iron candlesticks. Jules' eyes look like pale wood in his high-blooded face. His eyes look like a piece, look like pieces of burnt-out cinder fixed in his face. Her eyes look like lamps just blaring up just before the oil is gone. Her eyes, the life in them, rushing suddenly upon them. The two flames glare up for an instant, then they go out as though someone had leaned down and blown upon them. His eyes round and black in the middle, like when you throw a light in an owl's face. If her eyes had been pistols, I wouldn't be talking now. What a great line. Driving his eyes at me like two hounds in a strange yard. So those are a few that she mentions. Heidi, I'm going to ask you this first. What, what's with all the, the eye similes? What do you think Faulkner is doing here? What's the connection that can be made? Does Faulkner just like a good simile? They're almost like <laughs> epic similes. Oh man, I do love this question. You told us that there we had received a really good question about similes, but you didn't give us any details. This is the first time we're hearing it. And this is a great question. Uh, yeah, I noticed that too. I think that there's multiple things going on with the similes and I'll leave some of them for Tim to talk about. But I think the first one is that, that again, Faulkner's playing with the form as well as telling a story. And uh, so what we have in the form is we're behind the eyes of each character, seeing the world through their eyes and through their perceptions. And so perception then, of course, becomes integral to the storytelling itself. Uh, And so how the characters see the world and perceive the world becomes uh, absolutely essential to understanding the novel. And so it makes a lot of sense that the similes uh, and and the language and the descriptive language would center on their eyes. Um, And, uh, and, and and then we, again, see these characters from behind their eyes looking at each other's eyes and comparing those eyes to different things, usually light or fire. And that is really, really amazing writing. Like that, just that itself is very, very brilliant. Multiple layers of perception just in that idea. Um, and, and so I think it's also significant then that we're looking at their eyes as lamps and light and fire, um, because those are obviously perception, um, type similes. Um, they're within the natural world. They're things that these people would understand and know and be around on a daily basis, lamps and fire and owls and all that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, fire 
does two things, right? It illuminates and it consumes and destroys. And I think that that idea of perception contrasted with consumption is a huge part of the relationships within this novel and the contemplation about storytelling uh, and form that, um, that Faulkner is doing on that meta level. Tim, what do you want to add to that? I have nothing to improve on that, Heidi. That was great. I just want to say that if her eyes had been pistols, I wouldn't be talking now. Is just just a great line. So mm. good, yeah. So good. The ones about Jules' eyes too. The the wood that I I mean, all of it's brilliant. But there were just I mean, and that's how we're getting behind. That's how we're learning about Jewel, right? Is other people's perceptions of his perception. That's brilliant. Like multiple layers of things going on there on Faulkner's mm. part as an author. Okay, here's one from Amy. What is the purpose of Cora's narrative? Is she meant to throw us off on the true nature of the characters and their roles in the family? In some cases, she's kind of right. And in some cases, uh, she's definitely wrong. So there were a few questions about Cora. Um, Tim, you want to take that one first? I'm not sure what the role of Cora is. She feels like a very kind of a classic Southern character. Um, She's kind of an inherited... Um, like a kind of a Baptist Christianity, and it's the way that she um, sees the characters through that lens. I, I think that Faulkner is probably being a little bit critical of that mindset, maybe even a lot critical of that mindset. And I wonder if she if she serves a role. It is one to kind of like continue to kind of like draw paint the picture of the south at this particular time but also to incorporate a kind of traditionalist view of the family that would be predominant during that time that's that's my view i I kind of like cora at the beginning of the book but my esteem for her kind of falls you know as she um yeah grows more she's just really judgmental about these characters and doesn't really seem to have much sympathy with their with their plight and it it does seem like the sort of moment in the book when we get her points of view mm. throw you are, are meant to almost be like misdirection maybe i don't know if he oh how Faulkner so would what do you say mean? because sometimes she's right and sometimes she's wrong so early mm. in the book when she's a narrator within the first three chapters or whatever we're not quite used to what Faulkner's doing and how he's using his points of view. So you start out by kind of thinking, well, maybe we're supposed to take what she says for granted. Mm. But her perspectives on the characters are only her perspectives. They're not necessarily the truth about the characters. And so you begin, she kind of makes you think a certain thing about a character, but then we have to learn the truth for ourselves as we get to know that character through their own points of view. Um, And even then, they can't really be trusted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Heidi, you want to say anything about Cora? Yeah, I I like what you guys are saying. I think that Cora provides for us the perspective on the female characters from a more conventional female character within the community, right? What we might expect 
an ordinary uh, kind of farm wife within this culture to be like. Cora provides that. Um, and then we have, uh, she, so she, she's in many ways, I think, a foil for Addie and for a little bit for Dewey Dell, because once we once we actually hear from Addie, we're like, whoa, this woman is really intense. She's very bitter. She's full of rage. She she is not seeing herself in her family through any kind of eyes of love. Um, and then, but on the other hand, we get Cora, who provides kind of this, this and not an antithesis because she's definitely flawed, but but she's ordinary. She's like a regular mm. person. And Addie is not. And neither is Dewey Dell. And so that I think is really important for us to have some kind of normalizing characters amongst these tragic characters. And I think Cora is one of those. What's the name of the man that kind of sees the family crossing toward the river? You know, the, the bridge is washed out. I can't remember that. he. I think he only has one episode in the book. He also kind of plays the role of this. He's normal. Yeah, Samson. Samson, Samson. Yeah. Think, yeah. 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 Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're, they're, they have their flaws. They're real people in their own core is Samson is Vernon is Peabody is right. Like they, um, and Peabody is a recurring character in multiple novels by Faulkner. And so we get these, you know, they're, they're not perfect, but they're, they're kind of like normal people and we can spot their faults. They're forgivable. They're just regular guys. Right. And regular men and women. And then you get behind the eyes of these like tragic characters and you're like, Whoa, they're really, really different. And, and they're different on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason yeah, we yeah, know yeah. that is because we've got Cora and Vernon and Samson. Right. So I think that's part of their purpose. Hmm. Okay. Q and a style. We got to move on. Um, Heidi, I want to, in a minute, we've got some questions about ants. We've got some questions about Daryl that I want to bring up. But there's one here that's kind of directed at you that I want to give you a chance to address. Joseph says, in the first episode, you mentioned in passing that you found this book to be funny. But I haven't heard any discussion about since about seeing humor in this family's endless tragedies. I find it to be a great example of Southern humor. For example, it seems clear to me that Addie's dying wish to be buried 60 miles away was simply her way of being a pain in the neck to her selfish and self-absorbed husband after her death. Also, Peabody's last chapter is one of the funniest examples of Southern humor anywhere. It's one thing to be poor and ignorant, but there's no excuse for casting a broken leg with cement. <laughs> Once you see the humor in the story, you can't unsee it. Do you want to address what you think is funny here? He he gave some great examples, but what's what's your take on that? Because you did you did mention that I did, and it's true. It does have this. I I have to say this time and reading it, I did pay a lot more attention to the darkness than to the humor, um, and so that's probably why it didn't come up again and again on the podcast. Plus, this novel so complex. We kind of picked a few a few things to trace. Uh, and in our yeah. conversations, yeah. because we have such a short amount of time to like dig into this like endlessly compelling and layered novel. There's so many things I feel like we didn't talk about at all or barely scratched the surface on. I wish we could add more time to talk about the form. I wish we could, you know, all these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even Southern culture in general, which I've never lived in the South. And so I am missing, I think, a lot of those references. And I had hoped to be able to talk to the two of you and hear more from our uh, listeners about. It. And so there's there's a lot of things we missed and that's one of them for sure. But I agree. This is like if if I were you know, playing it as a movie in my head as I was reading it. And you guys are better at this than I am because I know very little about film, but I see it. And like, I, I'd love to have like the Coen brothers get their hands on this novel, right. And make it some kind of like 
crepe, creepy, crazy, dark Southern comedy. Yeah. Wow. What's his name? Tried to make one. Um, yeah. The guy who's in the spot, the, the, the Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies. movies. Yeah. Um, I, I, like James Cameron. No. What? Baldwin. No. Oh, I no. thought you were talking James. about like an actor. Oh, what is his name? Like this is like this great. <laughs> you are yelling at us anyway. Yelling Everyone's us. yelling at us he, right Franco. now. He's a, James Franco. Franco, yeah. James and he, Franco. And he's uh, I think he might even have his either his master's or his PhD from in English from Harvard or one mm-hmm. of the Ivy League schools. So he's bringing his filmic career, his career in movies, and combining it with his enthusiasm for this book. But you know, it's I think it's kind of. A, Man, yeah, you'd have you'd have to take some real liberties with it, and Coen Brothers would have to kind of oh yeah, just have some fun with it. Tim, Even do you like want Tim to... Burton could make this novel. Like it's just like it has like this cartoonish, over the top Southern Gothic quality to it. Well, sure, I think is why some of the covers have ended up the way they they end up. Tim, do you yeah. want to talk about the sense of humor, the Southern sort of humor at all? Do you have anything to say on this? Being I don't. I don't. I, I can't think of any examples. I mean, I can hear the characters in my head, and I'm like, oh yeah, that guy lives in North High Shoals, Georgia. I've met him before. Um, <laughs> I, I can't remember. That any feels very specific. Of uh, humor that really got me. I mean, I I saw it and I felt it, but I can't cite any examples right now. Yeah, I think it's one. Of, I think it is one of those books where if you haven't lived around it, you probably aren't going to see it. And not you. It's like. The more you read it, maybe the more you feel it. I think if you don't think it's funny the first time you read it, no one would blame you. Like, it's fine. Read it again if you want to find that. But if you didn't find it funny, you know, that's fine. Um, we guess we got a bunch of questions about ants. And I actually think um, as dark as he is, some of the stuff about ants is pretty hilarious. And one of the questions was about um, the teeth. And Rachel, she says, I'm feeling pretty dense about the teeth which by itself is a pretty funny sentence. Um, but then Rachel says, Anne's response to the death is, Anne's response to the death is, now I can get them teeth. So wait, why can't he get teeth when, she, when, at, when she's living? What about her death enables him to get teeth? He doesn't have the money at this point in the narrative unless I'm missing something. So Anne's and his teeth, what's the big deal about the teeth? Why could he not get teeth when she was alive? Heidi, do you want to jump on this, Tim? You, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I just took his word for it. He he wouldn't go to Jefferson. He's lazy. He wouldn't go to Jefferson other than to bury his wife. Like I got to run an errand. Yeah. Look how hard it was to get to to Jefferson. Yep. (laughs) I don't blame him. He's got, I mean, if the man wants to run an errand, his wife has to die. Like that's one of the funny parts of the story, right? Like now I can finally go get something done with my dead wife. He he didn't want to be beholden to anybody except her dying. Right. There's so I guess I just I never it's a good question. It's a fair question if there's something else going on, but I took it at like face value. Lazy guy, gotta bury his wife, might as well stop and get some teeth. <laughs> and pick up another woman. I'm gonna meet yeah, myself exactly. another a duck-shaped woman. <laughs> 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 gotta go to town to get a, some teeth and a duck <laughs> and a duck-shaped woman. What Can't are you find- in the market for, sir? Some teeth and a duck-shaped woman. A lady. You need to make that. That's going to be the name of your album. Oh, man, that would be a great and album. A duck teeth and a yeah. duck-shaped woman. Or that could be your band, Duck-Shaped Woman. <laughs> and the, your debut album title is just called Teeth. Yeah, I love this. I love this. Do you have any further thoughts, though, on the books? 
the book's perspective on Ansys teeth? I, I think it's um, silent about whether or not his real motive to go to Jefferson is teeth. I can imagine that. I can also imagine, no, it's really about burying his wife. You know, he has some allegiance to the promise that he made her. But I, I no, I don't know his what his like heart of hearts motive is. Is I think it's hidden. It's hidden from us. I do think that the fact that he is toothless is important as a metaphor. Like mm-hmm. he, he has, he sort of lacks chewability <laughs> in all parts of his life. You know, he, he's he's a toothless guy. I mean. And, and it makes him seem poorer on the one hand. It makes mm-hmm. him seem, you know, he, he wouldn't be able to eat the things that other people can eat. He mm. wouldn't, you know, when he speaks, he would sound different. So all those sorts of things come into play in terms of how you visualize and imagine this character. So if you're putting it on film, you'd have to, what would not having teeth mean to how you portray this character? And then there's also, it would sort of situate him in the in terms of his, how poor he is. Um, but, and then the things that Heidi said, but I do think that metaphorically there's a sense which he, he's toothless. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have courage. He doesn't have yeah, the ability craven. to get things done. Yeah. I mean, like he's, he's sort of like soulless in that, you know, you know, like I was thinking about how when you, his lack of teeth would impact his smile in a kind of gruesome sort of way just kind of an odd sort of way. And it talks about how like emaciated he is. So mm-hmm. it's not just that he's gaunt, but he's gaunt and he's toothless. So like he, he there's, it creates this sort of spectral ghost-like thing about him. And um, I think when you are toothless, you would have this longing to be toothed. <laughs> uh, and so that's like, it makes sense that he has this longing, but you wonder if his own sense of self-worth was tied to what he knew, the way he knew that he treated his wife, but also the way she treated him. And so all of that kind of is this big characterization cycle that that metaphor of toothlessness plays into. I think that this is a question that you could like write your master's thesis on. And we can't, you know, but Tim, if you want to try to add anything to that. No, I have no master's thesis to offer. (laughs) We just need, we need like a sentence from a master's thesis. Um, like a, like, a, like a title, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toothful and toothless. Ants as a metaphor for the hollow man of the modern West in William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. I like it. Yeah. See, this, it's, it's like, like a sweat. It's perfect there's nothing academic about toxic speak. masculinity. In yeah, if I could there, get though. some toxic so masculinity. Get, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Really well, and has there, there ever been a character that is more toxic? He masculinity is toxic than masculinity. like is he, yeah. he and like it, yeah even his toothlessness probably plays into his toxicity the male gaze and toothlessness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. toxic the toothless male gaze <laughs> the toothless male toothless gaze, male gaze. Yeah, I'm actually all for for that for that paper. I'm usually not for such papers, but that one I'm for. Okay, mm-hmm. well, Michelle, that one actually fits. You're not right. forcing that one, so right? That's why you it's like, like it. the arch. It's like the archetype. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, Heidi. We talked a lot about Ants' wickedness. Michelle says, is Ants really as wicked as he seems at first? When Addie marries him, he does not seem that bad off. When he sells Jules' horse to get the mules, doesn't he also use the money he had set aside for his teeth to purchase the mules? 
that's there's a question there. Um, he also mentions that he has used his own money for years to buy them food, although I'm not sure where he got the money from. Did he work some? Ant seems to think he has sacrificed for his family's his family, although at a minimum, he seems to be willing to put his children in harm's way to achieve his goals. So is it possible there's more to him than we see? Or, you know, is there something in his past that has taken him from a decent person to one who is lazy and has no thoughts for others? So to what degree, I guess, ultimately do we think he he is evil and we we talked about that a little bit but i kind of see if you give your final final word on this question yeah so the question is it's a good question i think that the book itself has very little sympathy for ants and i think then we have very little sympathy for ants um i i do think that she's right like very right and i think the portrayal of him in addie's section of wanting to provide for his family is he's much more positive in that which is interesting because she hates him but he's more sympathetic in Addie's section than I think anywhere else in the yeah. novel. You finally yeah. get a little bit of insight into him as a young man, wanting to have more children, trying to comfort her, trying to provide for her, feeling um, like he wants to measure up to family expectations that she might have from her people in Jefferson. Um, so we do get a glimpse of him as um, maybe not a virtuous, good man, but fairly neutral, right? Compared to the way he is now later on. He um, I, I, yeah, I don't think that he's portrayed in the present of the novel with any sympathy or uh, on the part of the novel itself. The narration of the novel is not sympathetic to ants, and therefore we are not. And I think that's valid. And I don't think the novel asks us to have the same level of compassion on him that it has on the other characters. Mm. Tim, anything to add? I agree with Heidi. I think everyone, I mean, it, it's, it's, we are the ones who are always professing like great empathy for our characters. And it may sound like we're defying our own advice in our treatment of ants last week and the week before. And I, I think that I think there's a difference between like wanting someone's best. Like we want ants to not be the way he is. We want him to change. We want him, you know, to receive all blessings and honor because he's a fellow human being, but I think that there is a, he is far down the wrong road. He is really far down. And to come back from how far he's gone down that road would involve a, a, a heroic effort. And we just have seen no evidence that he's capable of heroic efforts right now. We just haven't seen it. Hmm. Hey, Tim, there's a question here I want to throw at you. Um, I changed the subject a little bit, just again, yeah. nature of these podcasts. Kat says that she would love to hear a comparison with of this book with a gathering of old men. And this is in this particular sense. She says, um, both books are, they have a similar style telling a single story from constantly shifting perspectives. She says, both books are clearly massively written, but as they lay dying has generated a lot of frustration among readers. Well, a gathering of old men received gushing praise. Uh, well, both books received gushing praise on the podcast. Um, she says she didn't quite follow along with the Gathering of Old Men Facebook conversation. So, But then she says, I guess what I'm really asking is why As I Lay Dying gets so much shade thrown on it. Is it because it's so much less tangible? It was definitely harder to understand what's happening in As I Lay Dying. And maybe that's what generates the hatred. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how the two books are similar and different given that they have this sort of similar perspective. And I remember Gathering of Old Men, I think that was the one that you were just really taken by it and surprised yeah. Yeah. by how much you 
buy that book. Yeah, it really so, yeah, grew we, on me. Very and very similar structural choices. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. they lay down, maybe is a little bit more obtuse in terms of knowing exactly what's happening. So, yeah. what? How would you? What do you think about the comparison between those? I, I think the biggest similarity, like the two biggest similarities, are um, place and time being number one. Like this is a very similar kind of part of the world that um, is being talked about by these two authors. The second similarity is the multiple points of view as a storytelling device. I think the biggest difference is that. Um, Faulkner's stream of consciousness prose is profoundly, uh, it requires a lot from the reader. And I don't think that a gathering of old men is as demanding. The multiple point of view does require that we kind of like step into different characters' shoes and kind of see the world through their eyes. And that's a challenge. But I don't think that the prose in a gathering of old men is nearly as demanding as the prose and as I lay dying. And I think that the shade, I mean, you said it, David, the shade that's been thrown at as I lay dying, I think mainly has to do with just, this is a hard book to get through because the point of view, not only does the point of view shift, but just the words just demand that we pay close attention to a meandering mindset. <laughs> meandering mindset. It's a good phrase. It's a good question from Kat. Um, and gathering of old men is, is pretty close, um, you know, fresh, fresh on the mind, I guess, relative to other books. Heidi, do you want to add anything? Yeah. I also think that a gathering of old men had more likable characters. I just think they're, and, 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 and a contrast between any of heroism, like it, they've, they, it had like heroic characters you get behind. Right. And we don't have yeah, that that's a great in point. as I lay dying. Um, yeah, and, this- and that, yeah. I Sorry, my, my computer my computer lagged. Sorry. Pitiable characters in As I Lay Dying, but no characters. What was the name of the um the white man that stood up to his father? The, like the like the really mm-hmm. racist guy. Yeah, the, the, the villain the, son. Yeah, the football player. Yeah, he I don't goes remember. kind I don't of into his name, the hornet's yeah. nest and you know speaks directly to his father with compassion and to say nothing of all the African-American characters are like, you know what? Enough of this. We're standing up and kind of like as a community say like, no more of this. You can take us all to jail, you know? Was that Gil? Yeah. So they're, what's that? Was it Gil? I think it was Gil. It was Gil. Good job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what you're saying is true because that book also has a sense of like, Although there are differing perspectives, you kind of have a real sense of this book is about questions of justice. As I lay dying, it's hard to know, like, is this book about, is it asking us to contemplate some complex universal question? Whereas A Gathering of Old Men clearly is asking us to do that. And so you can wrestle towards that question when you're dealing with different points of view, which is hard to know. Like, what am I wrestling towards in As I Lay Dying. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah, that can you be don't know what you're rooting for in this novel. Like there's, Gathering of Old Men was clearly like you're rooting for something. You're, you have to pick a side yeah. and it's pretty clear what side you're supposed to pick, right? And As I Lay Dying is much, much more ambiguous and even ambivalent. Um, yeah. And um, and I, I think As I Lay Dying is an objectively better novel, um, but it's, it's much harder and less, um, uh, kind of less like inspiring towards like loyalty. Mm. 
And, you know, or like courage or. Yeah. Um, we have a question here. This was emailed in by Lyle. Uh, well, Elizabeth actually says, so she says, um, it's about Dewey Dell and Darl. And we got some questions about Darl. So might as well ask a few of those here. Why would Dewey Dell turn Darl into the authorities for burning down the barn? Yes, he knew her secret, but she also appeared to have some affection for him. He wasn't using his knowledge of her secret against him. She was also upset and tried to protect him when the men came to take him to the institution. So wondering your thoughts on what might have motivated her to betray him. Heidi, you got any thoughts on this one? I think I'm pinging back and forth here. If I'm not, and I ask someone yeah. two questions in a row, just shove the other person out of the way and jump in. Yes, that, that's that's what I'll do. Um, he is, I think, because he knows her secret and she's a little threatened by that. I also think that we're in a family of traumatized people and traumatized people uh, are uh, self-protective more than their others protected and um, and Faulkner understands that and is giving like shifting the ground beneath us. He always gives us a compelling psychological reason for that. And I think for her, um, it's it's that he knows her secrets and um, and and she's so used to being exploited by men that her like any kind of sense of betrayal from Darl, even a small one is uh, likely to kind of trigger an, uh, an overactive trauma response from her because there is trust between them. And so then if he falls from that, even a little bit, she's going to turn on him. And I think he gives us that in the novel. Tim. I, I can't do better than that. I mean, I, I do think so many of these characters' motives are, they're hidden from us. They are so hidden from us, which is surprising considering how much inter interiority we get from them, which brings me back to the point that I keep kind of like wrestling with in this book, which is, is Faulkner's view of human beings such that it is our subconscious or semi-conscious drives that are really the most important things and the kind of narrative, the kind of language that we articulate to ourselves about ourselves, it's always kind of incorrect. It's always off because our motives and our self-talk just don't always line up. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just think that the juxtaposition of like, we get so much interiority from these characters without much, um, recognition of motives is that's a really fascinating decision by Walkner by, by Faulkner. And I think it says a lot about how he views human beings. When you said Walkner, was that like, were you um, imagining Walkner. Christopher Walken playing William I was. Faulkner? Yeah, I was, I was imagining him actually playing. Can you do a Christopher Walken Ants. voice? I can't. I, can't I have a friend who Walken. can do just a perfect Christopher Walken. Really? It's one of those things where every time you hang out with him, you want to say, "Hey, can you just talk the rest can of the night?" Can you walking as, tonight? Right, but you know he doesn't like to do it that much. Dewey Dell is such an interesting character, and I feel like we didn't maybe give her enough time. And I was thinking about how her role of all the people is probably going to change the most with Addie being gone, because mm. she's going to have to take on a lot of the traditional women duties duties of a woman, woman in that world, but while also trying to navigate having this child 
well, and so she's trying not to have the child, obviously. But I was curious, like Heidi, when you read this, how much do you read her being panicked versus um, ashamed? And I don't, mm. and I don't mean to say that there's like those are two mutually exclusive things; those right. go together. Right. But are her actions driven by shame, or are they driven by like? panic more like because they're oh, I mean, you, I mean the, yeah. the, the panic is coming because of the shit like they go together I understand that yeah but like when I she think, turns him in I I think both I think panic desperation at that point is her driving force because she's lost the opportunity to have an abortion and she now is like she she no longer has that kind of carrot dangling in front of her even mm. though it was always a long shot she's not intelligent and like she's not savvy enough to know how much of a long shot it was like she had this like blind faith I take my ten dollars I give it to the guy he gives me an abortion right like so like it's like that very simple mm. mind and she's not cunning she's 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 like a victim like she's She's portrayed in such animal-like terms throughout the whole thing, like as a heifer, which is carries so much symbolic weight because of it's um, it's an animal that's always exploited and always sacrificed mm. and always sexualized. Like mm. its chief value is milk and breeding and meat for consumption, and that is like that, yeah, and, and, and also. And sacrifice. And, and so that is always kind of the, this, and she's pretty, we know that. So he's not comparing her looks to that. We know she's a very pretty girl. So it's just, she's just, I, I think she's, I mean, they're all such tragic characters, but she's the one that my heart goes out to the most. She's the one I kind of want to like crawl in the book and save, like, I'll bring you home and take care of you. And we'll find it. Like, um, <laughs> there's yeah so i do think that Her panic is what motive yeah for sure i do think panic is what is motivating dewey dell at that moment tim you look geared up well i was thinking about ovid's metamorphoses do you remember the story mm. of oh yeah io mm. yes. isn't it io who is turned like zeus is changed chasing her she's kind of trying to refuse him and as a punishment what has she turned into? She's turned into a cow. A cow. Yeah. And I think it's like for the reasons that you just mentioned, Heidi, that it, it, she was kind of a piece of meat to Zeus. So, of course, that's what she would be transformed into by Zeus. Um, this is an interesting question from Julie. She says, I'm curious about Faulkner's choice to have so many sons and one daughter in the family. What is the effect of having one feminine presence, presence, president, presence left after Addie's passing? What, beside the obvious plot line, would we miss without Dewey Doe? Could you conceive of a similar book in a daughter-heavy family? She calls it the dysfunctional little women. And she mentions that she, when she's got, a, she's the mother of only biological sons and they foster girls. And when there's an extra female in the home, the entire dynamic changes in the house. And it's not just because there's an extra person or personality. I don't remember who I asked first. Should we just let, should we let Tim take this one? All right, Tim, go ahead. So like, what, what would could, change if there was more like another daughter? Yeah, another or could, could this story still be the inverse? Be like the, the, inverse. the dysfunctional little women where you've got four daughters and a son? Boy, it would be a dysfunction of a different 
type to make to say the most obvious thing in the world. Um, I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about what this story would be like if it was daughters instead of sons. I somehow sense that there'd be less less violence and threats of violence, but that probably says more about like my broader impressions of. Um, your experience with females nonviolent women males yeah i haven't thought about what it what it would be like to recast the brothers as sisters how did you i mean they wouldn't be able they wouldn't (laughs) well i have not but they wouldn't be able to go to jefferson so much i think that that on again on that like storytelling level is part of why we have so many boys is you have to have the boys to get to Jefferson. You can't do that with a bunch of girls. Um, with the division of labor at the time and the role, the gender roles and all that kind of thing. And uh, also I think Dewey Dell just like bears the weight of this kind of idea of the sacrifice of women within this culture. Um, and I, I think that it's a... I think it's a good choice to kind of um, take all of that and put it on one character bearing the weight of that. Uh, I think on a, on a storytelling level that kind of aims and orients all of our compassion on her, especially because Addie is so unattractive as a character in the, you, in the times that we do meet her. Do you think that if it had been one guy in that role, we would have had less sympathy for the sort of guy that's put in that situation? Like if, if it's a son, if it was a son and a father, like, would that be different? I think that's a good question because I mean, we do, this is a story about fathers and the the abdication and abandonment of, of fathers um, in a metaphorical sense, as well as in a very literal sense Mm -hmm. uh, within the story. Yeah. Um, and and Faulkner likes that theme, like it's very Faulknerian. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, it is, the, it is the yeah. Faulkner theme. And I don't think he seems to know as much about women and the way women think and function in the world as he does it, about men. And so it seems to me to kind of like stick with men seems like a good idea. <laughs> he, being a being a man, he, he knows he knows. Right. Men like better. if I was to write a story, I could write a better story about mothers and daughters than I could about fathers and sons. And so. I don't think that's, I think, I, I think that's a good storytelling choice, right? What you know. Okay. A couple more questions here, just for the sake of time. Um, Sarah asks a question. I think we talked about it a little bit last time, but why does Darrell burn, burn, burn the burn down? Uh, it feels like it comes out of left field a little bit. And a couple of people said they were confused by why that happened. So we, it gets revealed that Darrell did it by Dewey Dell. We talked about those dynamics a little bit, and that's kind of forever going to be something that could be discussed and contemplated. Heidi, do you, you've got a, do you have an opinion on this one, Heidi? You didn't I mean, want me to ask you first, did you, Tim? You just jumped right in there. <laughs> yeah, I did. I redirected. I I think that Darl. Yeah, I do. But I enjoy reading multiple perspectives of Darl's barn burning. Like I have. I think it's fun. I've done it many times over the years, even though I haven't read the novel since I was in high school, because I remember that part. And it is, as I said on the last podcast, so much ink has been spilled in American letters to try to understand Darl's barn burning. So there's no right answer to this. There is no one answer to this. It is a literary 
conundrum that has occupied the minds of American literary scholars for a couple of generations now. And I like it that way. I like the fact that it is ambiguous. And so I'm not going to necessarily try to solve it. I do think he was trying to burn the body. Um, And that I think that was his primary motivation. Um, I also think that he has a psychological break, but I'm not sure when. I don't know if it comes before or after the barn burning. And I think that impacts the barn burning a lot. And I don't think there's enough in the text for me to take a definitive stand on that. I could, I've read multiple perspectives either way. Some literary scholars say he that he had a liter a psychological break before and that and so he was like crazy at the time. And some people say it happened after. Um but to burn a barn's a really, really big deal. Like that's not a small thing within Southern culture. It's huge. It's a, the destructive act of like a vast, it's like horse stealing in the West for our listeners. Like, you know, we, we read about horse stealing and we're like, oh, bummer, you stole a horse. But like to burn a barn is to destroy someone's livelihood. Everything they've worked for their whole life, enslaved for and toiled for, goes up in flames, literally, and they can no longer like it's like killing the family. Um, so it's it's very serious. And I, I think he does it to get rid of the body and 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 so he can go home. Um, but I still don't think that's sufficient answer. There's more to it than that. Tim? My I Echo what you say. We don't know. This is a great mystery. My hunch is he had a psychological break before the burning. Okay. And did he do it um, not in his right mind? Yeah. I think he didn't do it in his right mind if I kind of like place the timeline in that in that fashion. Um, Amy, David? Amy, well, Amy points out in the comments that Cash thought he was, quote, doing right in a way. Cash thought that Daryl was doing right in a way and that Jewel stopping it from burning the coffin or body was going against God in a way, which is interesting. Faulkner does a lot of, I don't want to say misdirection, but he offers a lot of possibilities for what this moment means and why it happens. And because the characters all have different perspectives on it. And Cindy mentions here that Addie's already been through water, now fire, purgatory or judgment imagery. And it is interesting Mm -hmm. how fire and water is these two like, elements in opposition to one another. They have to cross mm-hmm. the river. There's a lot of imagery, you know, river sticks types of imagery there, but also like, I mean, like the images that he chooses to use, he, he being Faulkner really employs the full range of possibilities that those images offer. He doesn't make it a simple, well, fire, you know, rivers mean, you know, cleansing. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways that you can, you can use. And I really think that his reading of Shakespeare and the classics and his, his sense of storytelling and like folktales and all those kind of things that Faulkner knew so well allowed him to do that. Like he's drawing on this whole huge tradition, all these different ways that this imagery has been used. And then he kind of just like, it becomes a sandbox. He kind of plays with it and he doesn't, it, the great the reason these books last is because you're not given the answer to that question. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of like I don't want to say it's the point of the book, but it's the point of the conversation. Like that's right. It, if he had just given us that answer, we wouldn't be talking about the book in the same way. You know, like right. I, that's not that helpful. But you know, right. It's like reading the Iliad, like and talking about Achilles' anger or Agamemnon's anger. <laughs> 
or anybody else's anger. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Tim, you look pensive. Also, are you in a closet? I'm in a closet. This is my new recording studio at my new condominium. You're literally in a closet. Is that a shirt over your shoulder? It is. It's a nice white dress shirt. It's a I um, do like a tight crisp fiber. Shirt. Yep, yep. It's a tight cotton fiber collared shirt. Uh, Great. Brooks Brothers, I do believe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, no free ads. Are you kidding? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Heidi Haley asks, why does everyone keep helping ants? His children don't really resist him, even though they don't seem to think taking Addie's body to Jefferson is sane. The neighbors keep offering to help him as well. Is there just, is it just loyalty to their father or neighbor? And do you think loyalty, well, here's a question. Do you think loyalty is a virtue? Okay. Um, yes. Loyalty (laughs) is a virtue. I do think that. I think that they're helping him because they're, I, I, I think they all have multiple motives. Um, they want, to do right by their mom. This is their way to honor her. And everybody needs some kind of um, ritual goodbye at, at, in the event of a death. Like you need, we need that. Like this is their, this is, this is their way of honoring their mom. And they're also, also broken and by their life and docile, right? They have this like docility to them with the exception of Jewel, who does seem to be the one, in my opinion, who is the most protective of Addie's. He's the most protective of Addie. Whether his attachment to her was stronger than the other kids, I don't know. And that's not what I'm saying, but his his way of showing attachment is protectiveness, which again, Addie alludes to when she says, Jewel will save me from fire and water. And it is Jewel that saves her from the river and from the barn burning. And is that a true salvation is a a good question mark, you know, uh, for the, for the story, um, whether it was, whether he should have done that. But I think they, I think they go along with their dad to say goodbye to their mom. I really think it's as simple as that. And because they're just broken people who do what they're told, which is another level of the societal kind of um, uh, examination of this story, uh, which is we don't have free thinking people who are ruling themselves. They are, like all traumatized people, very easily led by outside forces. Toward that end, I think that, yes, loyalty is a virtue, but it's also a contingent virtue. Meaning loyalty to the wrong ideals, loyalty we to the wrong We did just person. talk about Heidegger a couple episodes ago. Speaking of someone to make a – sorry. Oh, oh. Someone who was and, loyal to the wrong thing. Mm, sorry. Right, I right. didn't mean that. I was to. like, what's the middle step there? I missed the middle <laughs> step. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's Heidegger, so we that, never know the middle step. I, I think no, that another um, good point. this family is – yeah, I think their loyalty to ants needs to come to an end. Agreed. For sure. Do you think it will? No. Okay. So l- let me ask. This I don't is the know. last. I, that's what we hope for. That's what I'm hoping for. But I don't. I don't know. We don't see any evidence. I'm a little of that bit more optimistic, I think, than you are, Heidi. I just don't see evidence in the text. Yeah. Right. I think you'd have to. We'd have to really do a close study on Vardamon. Yeah, except for Jewel, and, we do see that with Jewel. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, this is the last question. We got a version of this question a couple times. So I'm just going to kind of rephrase it. 
in a general way to allow us to discuss this. What's the deal with the new wife? Who, who is she? What's with the music? Why is she there? Like, let's just kind of put a capper on our conversations on this book by talking about the capper to the book. He comes out of the house. It's the woman that he borrowed the shovel with. So he'd met her even before they put Addie into the ground. And then he goes back to her and people were a little confused or just question, had questions about like, what's the point? What's the deal? What's the deal? Someone doing Seinfeld, Seinfeld uh, impression here. What's the deal with, with the new wife? Don't know. For me, she's like an Don't. indication of a tragic loop. Like what has changed? Nothing has changed. So she's a replacement for Addie. Um, the fact that she's getting with ants without really knowing him is kind of like we're already getting a view into the kind of person that she is. She's either a sucker or she is going to kind of like make ants her, I don't know, servant, you know, or something like that. I don't know. But for me, the biggest issue is she's just her arrival is showing that the circus is going to go on. Do you think been replaced? Do you, do you think that the description of her being what was it duck shaped? Is that meant to like be almost like a metaphor for like she's going to have lay some more eggs? He's just going to have that cycle of having more babies and having someone to cook for him. Like, is it is that is that the idea? Like, Boy, how do you I hope not? But is it, how did you think that is what the implication is? I mean, all of the women in the story are described in very bestial terms, right? And mm-hmm. that is, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I took it, was uh, was that. She is also described as mean, like having mean eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and of ants having a hangdog look, another bestial term, right? Shame-faced and... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, like that kind of not, but a little more than that, even like he talks about him being hangdog and shifty, like cunning. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I think the tragic loop is a very, very good way of putting it. Um, it's also yet another betrayal. Like I came here to get teeth and a wife and, um, at my wife's grave, I had my son dragged off to a lunatic asylum and I took my daughter's abortion money to get the girl, right? Like it's, so so awful and again it's over the top so it has like this like it's like you either look at it and you're like I either feel like life is an empty wasteland or else I'm gonna like laugh my head off because it's just so over the top that it's funny um (laughs) and I think it's intended to be both um but it is it's a great ending it's a great ending on a, a plot level because it is like you kind of hit your forehead and are like, oh, I should have seen that one coming, but you didn't, you know? <laughs> what about the music part? What do you mean? Because there's the graphophone. Right. The fact that he yeah, meets and, her with music playing. Yeah, there's music playing and then she brings mm-hmm. her little music player. And and Cash talks about how much he likes music and he wished there was more music around. So, and he says he um, wishes Darl could hear it, but then that's when yeah. he says this world is not his world. Yes. 
Yeah. So the music could be a harmonizing element. And if, if she didn't have mean eyes, you could make you know, a case that there's, this is a moving forward. Like you, without that little thing, which again, Faulkner's a genius, right? He's more than just a good writer. Like there's a reason why he's called the, one of the greatest writers in American letters, because if it wasn't for the fact that she had that like mean stare, you could make a case that this is a heart that she's supposed to be a harmonizing element in the novel. Cause Addie's not very, like, Addie's not attractive. She's like, nobody likes Addie when you're reading, you want to right? you want to feel sorry for her because of all, like, all the mm-hmm. degradation that she's enduring. But then when you read her section, you're like, you're awful. So Again, like nobody is likable in this in this novel. They're all very, to quote Alice in Wonderland, like they're all very unpleasant people. Um, and uh, even the most sympathetic, which is Darl, uh, ends up disintegrating um, and causing the most destruction out of all of them. Like there's, I mean, he just causes more destruction in this novel to the community than Ants does, Darl does. So by a barn burning, um, so without that mean stare, you could make a case that this woman is a harmonizing element. But because of that mean stare, you're like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's like it's this stasis question again, right? Because right. the cycle can begin again, to your point, Tim. And that's the beginning of a new cycle is the beginning of possibility. So either in we're going to be back here again, metaphorically, or maybe literally, I don't know, or you have a chance to start over. And the implications of that are pretty complex. So Tim, any final thoughts on As They Lay Dying before we get into 1984, which is a book you really like, right? I do really like 1984. I, I do feel a little bad that we're going from darkness of one sort to darkness of another sort. It's like darkness of decay to darkness of what? Like an overabundance of order. So take take heart. It's not the same sort of darkness. <laughs> it's a different sort of darkness. Yeah, yeah. I we it was it's difficult to figure out what order to put these things in. So and like match up schedules and all that. It's a good choice. It's gonna be great. Like because it's it's just so um Faulkner is really great to read, I think, on a very literary level um and a psychological level. Uh, and it's like the sentences we've had a lot of readers who've really come around to the novel because as you get into it they're like wow it's so beautifully written look check out these sentences we've got people posting and quotes and all that um and but 1984 is uh which i know we can we can kind of take our stands now between the three of us we're not going to sit around and talk about politics and use it as some kind of like allegory for the ages of right now necessarily um but that's what it's it is intended to be uh to to connect with um contemporary life um and so i think in reading 1984 it'll be a good transition because it is dark it, it i mean it's definitely a very violent novel and a very hard novel um but it's one that'll make you think about contemporary issues and i i think that'll be fun although we're not going to politicize it let's say that right now speak for yourself no maybe wait yes. we're yeah. not 
Like, how can you? How can we read that book? I can't tell if you're being serious or not. Like, how can well, we? Well, depends read on that? what you mean what by What I'm saying is, we're not going to take it and talk about our own political beliefs and how it supports oh, our oh, point oh. of view and why it means this right now and this about I see. Putin I see. and Trump and the Ukraine and all that. Yeah. But if you want to brush up on your Charles Taylor, but you can at home, dear listener, you may take. That's what the novel's for. Like, it's intended to be to like make us think about contemporary issues and, um, and so it's very. I think it's really relevant that way i think it's a good time to read 1984 i mean yeah it's a great time to read 1984 okay well that's what we're going to do next week um we're going to start that the reading schedule should be posted by the time you get this episode in your in your podcast feeds and of course you make sure to check out the the content that we have up on the the Substack uh, page we got something from kate albus who's a great middle grade uh writer she wrote her, about her five favorite middle grade novels for read alouds um and then Heidi and I are going to be doing a conversation about um, a new book that came out that is written by an author that is beloved by a lot of you. And uh, there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff coming out. Tim, what's going on in the place of thing? You're a Shakespeare pod. Heidi and I are just about to record act five of Henry the fourth part one. We'll be joined by Brandon LeBlanc. I've got a little special episode coming up with my friend Josiah, who is a huge fan of the HBO series Station Eleven, and he kind of retroactively read the book. I read the book and then retroactively watched the mm. miniseries or series, whatever you want to call it. So we're going to hopefully in a week or two do kind of a vis-a-vis book and uh, miniseries, Station Eleven. And the reason that's relevant is because in Station Eleven, it's about, among other things, a post-apocalyptic world in which a traveling troupe of Shakespearean actors goes from kind of like outpost to outpost performing various Shakespeare scenes. So yeah, mm. Station Eleven is kind of a favorite of Great among, story. Yeah, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's, Shakespeareans. Among all the Shakespeare's out there. Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening and who has, if you, if you had a hard time with As I Lay Dying or you didn't love it at first, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for participating and listening to these conversations. And to everyone who is supporting the show uh, previously on Patreon and now through Substack, we really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the, the bonus content. All right, Heidi, anything else from you? Nothing from me. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.